You are very welcome to Mason Hayes and Curran's Employment Law Podcast. This is the first in a series of podcasts covering key employment law issues. My name is Melanie Crowley. I am one of the partners in Mason Hayes and Curran's Employment Law and Benefits team. And I am joined for this podcast by Lizbeth Ryan and Avril Daly. Liz is one of the partners in the team and Avril is one of our senior associates. Today's podcast is on managing sickness absence in the workplace. We're going to consider the day-to-day management issues which arise from an employment law perspective and we are going to look at the termination of employment on incapacity grounds. Employers have a huge number of issues to deal with when considering managing employees on sick leave. Uh, Employees have several entitlements which have to be managed and employers, in addition to having their own entitlements, also have obligations. Avril is going to look at the impact of sick leave on organisations. She is going to talk you through what should be in a sickness absence policy and what should be in a sick pay policy, two distinct policies, potentially albeit sometimes they are together. Avril's also going to take you through some of the very recent legislative updates on the accrual of annual leave during periods of sick leave. And she's going to give you some tips for how to manage medicals and employees and specifically how to instruct company doctors and occupational health specialists for when they are reviewing your employees. Avril's also going to consider the concept of reasonable accommodation in the context of disability issues. Liz is going to consider the case law around the termination of employment on incapacity grounds as distinct from conduct grounds. And she's going to give you some top of our top tips for terminating employees on capacity grounds. Without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Avril Daly. Thanks, Melanie. I think we could spend all day talking about sick leave. It's such a hot topic. But because we don't have a huge amount of time, we're not going to get into great detail on anything in particular. And instead, we'll do a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the key points as we see them. So as Melanie said, I will talk generally about the things you should ideally be doing to manage sickness absence in your business day to day. And then Liz will take it from there and she'll look at absenteeism problems in your workplace and how you might need to manage somebody out of your business. So sick leave is definitely a problem in Ireland, as Melanie said. I think it must be the most frustrating topic of employment law for us as employment lawyers. The latest findings uh, published by IBEC found that 11 million days are lost every year to absence, and that costs businesses €818 per employee. And that cost is nothing compared to the cost that you could end up facing if you badly manage and badly exit an employee and you end up facing a a claim in the Workplace Relations Commission. Apart from the obvious cost that absence can create for a business, it can be very damaging for other reasons. You know, it can lead to a loss of efficiency. It can put strain on other co-workers and it can affect a team's morale. It can be quite demotivating for a team when somebody is in and out on sick leave and it can be disruptive when they do eventually return. Of course, everybody gets sick from time to time and in any workplace, there will always be some people who can't come to work due to an illness or injury and that's fine. But we seem to be all too familiar with the scenario whereby 
you have an issue with somebody's performance, which leads to uh, an invitation to a disciplinary meeting. And next thing you know, you get a medical certificate which says that the person will be out on work-related stress. So to manage scenarios like this, it's really important to put in place comprehensive, well-thought-out policies for dealing with sickness absence in your workplace. And we'll get into what those policies should look like in a minute. It's also worth keeping an eye on the nature and the extent and the duration of a person's absence. So are they always complaining of the same abs- the same type of illness? Um, is it always a Monday that they're calling in sick? And Liz will consider whether your management of, of those people differs depending on recurring absence or, or long-term absence. It's interesting to see some of the different ways that other organisations try to monitor or reduce their sick leave. Some employers offer extra days holidays or or an incentive payment for employees who have no sick days in a given year. Um, Tesco, a couple of years ago, managed to significantly reduce their sick pay by offering an extra two days holidays for employees who who didn't take any sick leave in a given year. I think they've changed their policy since then, but it definitely helped them at the time. The Royal Mail in the UK went a step further. They introduced a draw for employees who had good sickness uh, records and some people out of that draw won holiday vouchers and others even won cars. So that's quite extreme, but it did work for the Royal Mail. They improved attendance levels by 11%. Another option which the HSE introduced to try to combat their sick leave problem is the idea of self-certified leave. This is used a lot in the UK and more commonly in Ireland, whereby the employee is required to fill out a form and sign a declaration on their return to work explaining the nature of their absence. Another option which seems to work for a number of employers is the idea of return to work interviews. So an employee who's been absent on sick leave is required to attend an interview with their direct manager or the HR manager um, explaining the nature of their absence. So I think that could certainly deter some people from calling in sick on a Monday. But regardless of how you want to try to monitor or reduce sick leave in your business. As I said, it's really, really important to have clear policies in place about how sickness absence is managed in your business and also on what sick pay entitlements, if any, you offer. And it's equally as important that you make sure that your employees are familiar with these policies. So we always say it, but there's no point having beautifully drafted policies at the bottom of your drawer. You have to absolutely give them to your employees put them on your internet, do what you can to make sure that your employees are aware of them. So you should review your policies, or we'd be happy to do that for you, to make sure that you have clear rules in place in relation to a couple of things. First of all, how to report sickness absence. So the employee should be required to notify a specific person by a specific time and in a specific way. For example, your policy might say that you are required to contact your supervisor or a member of HR by phone, not text message, within 30 minutes of your start time, explaining the reason for your absence and the likely duration of your absence. An employee should be required to do that personally and not just ask their their mum or their dad to make the phone call on their behalf. It might also be worth (laughs) specifying that employees are required to keep you informed of the progress of their illness if they're out for a longer time, which would allow you then to plan around their absence. The policy should also deal with how 
sickness is certified and medical certificates should take a certain form. Uh, I'll look at that in a minute on its own. Other details which should be included in your policy are in the case of an extended absence, an employee should be required to show a certificate of their fitness to return to work. Sick pay should be covered, or as Melanie said, you may have that in a separate policy, and I'll look at that on its own as well. You may also cover you know, the right to send an employee for a medical exam. Um, another thing that might be covered is the any kind of re- return to work procedures to establish whether the absence was related to anything in the workplace, for example, a bullying complaint or an accident. And finally then, it's important that the policy explains what will happen if an employee doesn't comply with your rules, whether it links into the disciplinary procedure, and Liz is going to look at that. So, as I said, it's particularly important that you have a clear policy about any pay entitlements an employee has while they're on sick leave. There is no statutory obligation in Ireland to pay an employee while they are out of work on sick leave, although employees might qualify for certain certain social welfare benefits. But many employers do offer discretionary sick pay schemes, whereby they offer to pay a couple of days or even a couple of months sick pay. But you need to carefully look at the wording in your policy to make sure that there's no question about an employee's entitlements. And this is particularly the case where your sick pay policy has a discretionary element. What I mean by that is we have seen provisions in the past which say something like, at the company's discretion, we will pay you up to five weeks sick pay. Now, there's an argument to say that by referring to those five weeks, this could mean that you've already exercised your discretion and that the employee now actually has a contractual right to those five weeks sick pay. Make sure as well that you have a cap on your sick pay if that's what you intend. So if you offer six months sick pay, make it clear that that will be the maximum in a rolling three-year period, for example, if the person is out for a full three years, if that is what you actually intend. Even where you do have a very defined sick pay policy in place, if it can be shown that there's a custom and practice in your business of paying employees more than is is set out in that policy, then you could be under an obligation to pay that to other employees because it could be deemed to be implied into their terms and conditions. Now, an employee can't just turn around and argue that they're entitled to a certain level of sick pay just because one or two other employees have received that in the past. What the cases say is that, in general, employees would have had to receive that amount on a consistent basis and that it was so obvious and so well known to everybody that a certain level would be payable. It is open to an employee, if they feel they haven't received their full sick pay entitlement, to bring a claim under the Payment of Wages legislation to the new Workplace Relations Commission. And employees will will try this, even where you have a very clear discretionary policy in place Um, We had a case a couple of years ago where the employer seemed to have a very clear policy in place which said sick pay is purely discretionary, it is not a contractual entitlement, it does not form part of your terms and conditions. Notwithstanding that, an employee brought a claim arguing that she was entitled to eight months sick pay just because that amount had been paid to one employee who had suffered from a life-threatening illness whereas she didn't. Now, she didn't win her case, but it does show that employees will try anything. Medical certificates. We have seen our fair share of questionable medical certificates, 
But the one that always sticks out in my mind uh, is one that we saw a couple of years ago from an occupational therapist, which said that the GP believes the employee is unfit for work due to overwhelming symptoms. So I'm not too sure what that means, but if you want to avoid getting a certificate like that, it's really important that you have clear rules in place about how medical certificates should look and how they should be provided to you. So your policy should require that a medical certificate is provided by a certain day, for example, on the third day of absence on on a weekly basis after that. The certificate should be from a qualified medical practitioner and not just a trainee doctor who's a friend of the employee. The certificate should set out certain details. It should have the name and address of the doctor, the name and address of the employee, the date that the certificate is issued, Um, It should be signed by the doctor and not just rubber stamped. And obviously it should have the doctor's opinion as to what the employee is suffering from and how long they are likely to be out of work. Your policy should also make it clear that failure to produce a, a medical certificate could lead to, well, first of all, disentitle the employee to sick pay if it's something that your business does offer. And also it could lead to the instigation of disciplinary procedures. Another point to note, which might seem obvious, is that you should demand that your certificates are provided in English, that medical certificates are given in English. We had a case a few years ago whereby a so-called medical certificate was provided in Polish, um, and it seemed to have been stamped with a, a clinic or a doctor's stamp. Now, when the document was later translated, it transpired that it wasn't a certificate at all. It was a Polish social welfare form. So it's very important to insist on certificates being provided in English, otherwise you don't know what you could be getting. I just want to briefly mention the new-ish rules around the impact of sick leave on annual leave. Since August last year, 2015, employees can now accrue their statutory annual leave while they're on long-term certified sick leave. And where an employee can't take their annual leave because of sickness, they will have up to 15 months after the the holiday year to take that annual leave. And I will give an example in a minute because it can be difficult to get your head around. The the rules only apply to an employee's statutory annual leave, which for a full-time employee in Ireland is 20 days paid annual leave. So the rules don't apply to any contractual holidays that a person might have on top of that. So to give you an example, John has 25 days holidays. 20 of those are his statutory entitlement and the other five he's entitled to by virtue of his contract of employment. He's on long-term certified sick leave between January 2016 and the end of December 2016 so he is out for the full holiday year. He will only accrue his 20 days statutory holidays and he can carry those forward until the end of March 2018 to the 15 months whereas he can't carry his five contractual days. Now, I think it's still worth including a provision in your contracts of employment which makes it clear that employees will not accrue their contractual holiday entitlements if they're on long-term sick leave. Because of the major impact that sickness absence can have on your business, you will often find yourselves needing to send employees for medical assessments to assess their fitness for work. Now, it's not as straightforward as just telling somebody you've made an appointment with Dr. Joe Bloggs for a specific time. There are a couple of rules that you have to keep in mind when you're referring 
people for these kind of assessments. And this is because an employee's right to fair procedures extends to what information is given to a doctor and also to what happens at any subsequent assessment. And the big case on this point is a case called Delaney and the Central Bank, which ended up in the High Court. And there, a senior employee was referred for a psychiatric assessment by the bank because the bank had concerns over his mental health. He had brought some bullying complaints against other employees. The bank psychiatrist found that the employee suffered from a paranoid personality disorder and that he wasn't fit for work. And on foot of the psychiatrist's report, the bank didn't allow the employee to return to work. In preparation for that assessment, the psychiatrist had been sent certain documents and a background brief, uh, but the employee wasn't provided with a copy of those documents, even though, or even when his solicitors later came looking for those documents, the bank said, no, we're not giving you these documents because they're legally privileged. It, It later transpired that the background brief, this letter, had actually been prepared by somebody who was the subject of the bullying complaint, so there was a question of bias. In the High Court, although the employee fully admitted that he had consented to the assessment, he felt that it was unfair that he had been excluded from the workplace solely on the basis of this psychiatrist's report, particularly where his own doctor had actually rendered him fit for work. And he argued that the bank had improperly influenced the psychiatrist in compiling his report. The High Court agreed with the employee. They said, yes, the process was tainted, that the employee had been denied his right to fair procedures and natural justice, and the court ordered that he be returned to the payroll. So when you are referring employees for medical assessments, make sure you uh, bear in mind a couple of rules. First of all, make sure you have a clear policy in place in relation to your right to send somebody for a medical assessment. Be clear about the reason for referring the employee for an assessment, which in most cases will be to assess their fitness for work. Remember that any material you give to a doctor or an occupational therapist should be very clear, unbiased and and factual. Stick to the facts. And don't be afraid to set out a list of questions for the doctor. You know, you're the ones paying for this assessment. So absolutely set out questions that you want answered. For example, what exactly is this person suffering from? When will they be able to return to work? Will they ever be able to return to work? If they do return, what exactly will they be capable of doing? Make sure that this material is also given to the employee so that they can properly prepare themselves for the, for the assessment. And like the Delaney case that I mentioned, if the employee has made complaints about other colleagues or employees in the business, make sure that those people aren't involved in the referral process. Um, make sure that they're not uh, responsible for pre- preparing any kind of brief for the doctor. If, if the doctor's, your own doctor's opinion is different to that of the employee's doctor's opinion, then you are going to have to consider appointing an independent medical advisor to assess the, per- the person's fitness for work. And most importantly, make sure you get the person's consent to the assessment. But not only that, make sure you get their consent to who will actually see the doctor's report and any medical results. Remember that medical results or or reports will constitute sensitive personal data, so you have to be very careful about data protection rules in this context. The Data Protection Commissioner is becoming even more strict around employers' handling of this kind of sensitive personal data, and one of our clients experienced this at first hand recently. They sent an employee for a medical assessment, and the results of that assessment 
were sent back to the company, to the HR team, I think it was, who then subsequently sent it on to the employee's direct manager. Now, you would think that that was perfectly reasonable, seeing as that the direct manager was the one who needed to figure out how to manage the employee and, and what kind of duties he could assign to the employee when they returned. But the Data Protection Commissioner didn't like this. She said, no, because the employee hadn't specifically been told who would see the report and she hadn't consented to that person seeing the report that it shouldn't have been given to the direct manager. So this is extremely frustrating and it, it means it's very difficult for a manager to properly accommodate an employee if they're not actually allowed to, to see these kinds of reports. So this leads me on to the concept of reasonable accommodation, which I'll just briefly talk about. It's a, it's a tricky topic. But depending on the nature of a person's illness and the medical view as to what that person is capable of doing, you could be under an obligation to make reasonable adjustments to that person's working conditions. So essentially, reasonable accommodation means giving a person with a disability more favourable treatment than you would give to somebody without a disability. And Liz will, will talk about disabilities um, in a minute, but it, it can a disability can be anything from back pain to depression to sick leave. It's very broadly defined. So, for example, you may have to adjust a person's working hours to allow them, for example, to attend medical appointments or um, counselling sessions. Or in a case that we had, an employee had impaired vision, so he was allowed to come in and out of work during daylight hours. Now, remember that you're only obliged to make these kind of adjustments where they won't cause a disproportionate burden on you as an employer. So you are entitled to take into account things like the cost of providing these adjustments, the resources available to you, and any possibility of getting public funding, for example. It will really depend on the circumstances of each particular case. The reality is that what constitutes a disproportionate burden for a big employer like Facebook or Google will be very different to what constitutes a disproportionate burden to the local corner shop down the road. And this is obviously because a big employer like Facebook will have lots of roles and lots of duties that it could potentially offer to an employee. So my top tips for today are make sure you have very clear employment policies in place about sickness absence management and sick pay. Get the employee's written consent before sending them to a doctor. Be clear about the reason for referring the employee to a doctor. Remember that any material you give to the doctor or the, or the occupational therapist must be very factual and unbiased. And finally, make sure that that material is also given to the employee. So I'll hand you over to Liz now, who'll take it from here. Thanks. Thank you, Avril. Avril has given you some really clear tips there about the kinds of things that you can require to be included in medical certificates and the kind of issues that you can request to have covered by medical reports. The only thing that I would like to add to what Avril said in that regard is that these requests and requirements have to be balanced against the very clear professional obligations of medical practitioners, particularly in relation to patient confidentiality. And that is a balance that is difficult to achieve, and it is an obligation which obviously medical practitioners are very aware of and very keen not to breach. So 
while this is information you can certainly request and it is information you can require, if that consent isn't forthcoming, uh, it might be just something that you have to factor into your expectations and how you subsequently manage employees. We're going to hand over now to Liz, who's going to talk uh, us through her tips for engaging with employees potentially around the termination of their employment on capacity grounds and how to effectively and correctly terminate an employee on capacity grounds if that is the desired outcome. Liz. Thank you, Melanie. So I'm going to cover the type of scenario which arises where an employer is considering terminating the employment contract of an employee on the grounds of absence or incapacity. It's probably true to say that in general our clients are really concerned about taking the step of terminating the employment contract on this basis. And the reason for that I think is twofold. Firstly, if an employee is dismissed from their employment because of their absence, it is open to that employee to claim that their dismissal was a discriminatory dismissal on the grounds of their disability. Disability is one of the nine grounds of persons protected under our employment equality legislation. And if an employee is successful in such a claim, they can be awarded by our third party fora up to two years remuneration, which is an incredibly large award. I think the other concern is that many employers genuinely feel a level of sympathy for employees who are absent from work, particularly where the absence is caused by a genuine underlying illness. It is important to note that in the context of disability, the Irish definition of what constitutes a disability is incredibly wide. It's wider than the definition which has been adopted, for example, in the UK, and covers aspects such as what we would normally consider to be an illness in terms of a physical illness, uh, but also um, psychiatric types of illnesses and also addictions such as drug or alcohol addiction. All of those areas of illness have been determined to be disabilities. In fact, the Irish definition is so wide, it encompasses the malfunction of a person's body. And some rather cynical commentators, it has to be said, have said that this would cover a situation where a person was experiencing a runny nose, because technically speaking, that is a malfunction of your body. I think the lesson to be taken from all of this is that because employees who are absent from work, where that absence is due to illness, can be categorised as being disabled and therefore protected under the legislation, employers do need to be cautious about taking the step of terminating the employment contract on the grounds of incapacity. However, it is very important that employers take some solace from the fact that both the Irish unfair dismissals legislation and the equality legislation make a clear provision stipulating that an employer is not obliged to maintain an employee in employment where the employee is not capable of doing their job. So therefore, you can take it that if an employer does terminate the employment contract on the grounds of incapacity, that if the employer goes through a proper procedure and takes all reasonable steps to ascertain that the reason for the employee's absence is because of their incapacity uh, due to an illness or a disability, that third parties will support you. I would encourage all employers, however, to be cautious and careful because third parties have clearly indicated 
that the tests expected of employers are that a procedure is in place and followed by the employer leading up to the dismissal and that the employer is expected to be absolutely sure that um, the, the, the person's illness, disability, incapacity is the basis for the termination of the employment contract. This whole issue came under scrutiny a number of years ago in one of the leading Irish cases on this point. The case is Neve Humphreys versus Westwood Fitness Club. And it's a case which I would encourage all of you who are minded to do so to read. Essentially in that case, the judge said that the dismissal of Neve Humphreys on the grounds of her incapacity was unfair. Just to give you some background to the case, Neve Humphreys was a fit, was, worked in the creche of a fitness club. She experienced uh, a condition, anorexia, over a number of years, which resulted in her having a pattern of absence. Her employer was initially very supportive of her condition and facilitated her with time off from work to take treatment and to go for counselling. However, after a period of time, her employer's attitude hardened slightly and it culminated in a situation where her employer outlined to her, uh, to Neve Humphreys that is, that if she was unable to return to work in a reasonably short time frame, that her employment contract would be terminated. Neve Humphrey's employment contract was terminated and she took a claim against her employer which went to our Labour Court and on appeal to our Circuit Court. Both the Labour Court and the Circuit Court judge said that the dismissal of Neve Humphrey's was unfair and was a discriminatory dismissal on the grounds of her disability. The judge in the Circuit Court case said that while an employer can terminate the employment contract of an employee on the grounds of, of their absence, that the employer should take a number of steps in order to ensure that that employer has a defence to a subsequent claim by that employee. And the steps really can be categorised as follows. There are principally four steps. Firstly, the employer should seek to understand the nature and extent of the disability. Really, what this involves is that the employer should seek medical information as to the person's condition and also potentially should consider sending the employee, as Avril outlined, to you, to the company doctor or the, employee's, the employer's doctor for an assessment. The second step is that the employer should make inquiries to determine if they can accommodate the disability. Avril also referred in her paper to the whole notion of a disproportionate burden. So while an employer is expected to accommodate a disability, they are not expected to accommodate that disability if it is financially uh, expensive for them to do so or if they can't accommodate the disability within their particular workplace. But certainly an employer is expected to make inquiries as to whether the disability can be accommodated. The employee should be given the opportunity to input into the employer's decision. So the employee should be given the opportunity to give any medical advice or, or evidence rather to the employer and also to speak to the employer about any other aspect that the employer should consider to see the employee return to work. The employee also should be given fair notice that their dismissal on grounds of incapacity is being considered. And that certainly would overlap with my previous point, which is that the employee's input should be taken in circumstances where the employee has been clearly notified uh, that their dismissal is being uh, considered, so that the employee can give 
information and input, knowing that potentially the outcome of the employer's decision could be a very serious outcome for them. The question arises, how does an employer notify an employee that their dismissal for incapacity is being considered? In many employments, the procedure that is relied on is the disciplinary procedure. Most disciplinary procedures in Ireland cover uh, disciplinary actions for performance and for conduct and for capability or incapacity. Disciplinary procedures normally involve an employer giving an employee a number of warnings that their conduct or their performance is unacceptable in advance of taking the decision to terminate the employment contract. I believe that while an employer can follow the disciplinary procedure, that it really should refrain from using the word discipline, because of course an employee who is genuinely ill should not be disciplined for being ill. And therefore, while it is good to use the framework of a number of warnings in advance of the dismissal, the type of framework that would exist typically in a disciplinary procedure, employers should refrain and, and, and not use a reference to the employee being disciplined. Some employers, but very few in my experience, have a capacity procedure, but it is something that I would encourage employers to think about. Whether an employer is using the disciplinary procedure or a particular capacity procedure, the important point to bear in mind is that that procedure should cover the four points that I've just um, pointed out to you in the Neve Humphreys versus Westwood case. Now I'd like to pause here for a moment because I think we have to be uh, very clear in that if an employee is breaching the rules of the sickness procedure, the type of rules that Avril referred to in terms of submitting medical certificates or maintaining contact with the employer, that's not about that, that employee's incapacity. That any breach of those rules could clearly be dealt with under the conduct provisions of the disciplinary procedures. So the type of warnings that exist in the disciplinary procedure, they are disciplinary warnings, but they're for breach of conduct type of, of issues. Whereas if the employer is considering the termination of the employment contract by reasons of incapacity, then the procedure does need to be nuanced in the context of the Neve Humphreys and Westwood case. It's very important that an employee is told at the beginning of the process what procedure the employer is going to use by way of giving the employee either the disciplinary procedure, the capacity procedure if the employer has one, or simply setting out in a letter to the employee the type of steps that the employer is going to take in advance of making a decision whether the employee is genuinely incapacitated and whether it is appropriate to terminate the employment contract. I mentioned at the beginning of my paper that the legislation in Ireland that governs dismissals, the unfair dismissals legislation and the employment equality legislation, deal with dismissals on grounds of incapacity. However, you won't find much other statute that specifically assists employers in determining what are the fair procedures and what type of considerations they should take into account in deciding whether or not to terminate the employment contract on the grounds of incapacity. For that reason, it's sensible for us to look at a little bit of case law and to take from that case law some of the major signposts that are set out for employers. The first case that I'm going to look at today is that of Reardon and St Vincent's Hospital. 
Mr Reardon was a porter in St Vincent's Hospital. He was ill over an extended period of time and his employment contract was terminated. This case is quite an old case. It dates from 1994. Mr Reardon argued that as his employment was, or his absence from his employment was certified and was genuine, that he shouldn't have been dismissed. However, the Employment Appeals Tribunal, who dealt with Mr um, Reardon's claim, determined that his dismissal was fair. It pointed to the fact that the hospital had genuinely sought to see if they could reorganise Mr Reardon's work or whether another position could be secured for him. The hospital also gave Mr Reardon a number of indications that they were considering the termination of his employment contract and gave him the chance to input into that decision before it was taken. The second case that we'll look at is that of Bulgers versus Sharings. This is an Employment Appeals Tribunal case which ended up actually in our High Court. So on that basis, we're looking at a very clear uh, course of law here because it is High Court jurisprudence. In that case, the High Court said that in order for an employer to have a defence to a claim of dismissal, where an employee is dismissed on the grounds of incapacity, the employer must be able to pass three tests. And these tests, you'll see, are really close to the Neve Humphreys tests. They are, firstly, that the employer must be able to demonstrate that the ill health of the employee was the substantial reason for the dismissal. Secondly, that the employee received fair notice that dismissal for incapacity was under consideration. And thirdly, that the employee was given the opportunity of being heard. As I mentioned to you, the Neve Humphreys case, which came after the Bulgers case, reiterated and developed on some of these points. The final case that I'm going to look at is that of Bernie Clavin and Marks and Spencers. Miss Clavin was out of work for a considerable period of time because she had had an accident outside of work, which resulted in her developing tendonitis. In fact, her injuries were so serious that she had to learn to walk again. Marks and Spencers wrote to her on a number of occasions asking her to meet with it to discuss her absence. She didn't get these letters because she was recuperating at her sister's house. However, she did visit her own home house and picked up the most recent Marks and Spencers letter. She contacted her employer and explained that she was more than willing to come to a meeting with it, but she would need some extra time to make an arrangement to attend at that meeting. Marks and Spencers gave her an additional two days to prepare herself for attending at the meeting. At the meeting, Marks and Spencers indicated to Miss Clavin that because of her level of absenteeism, they were considering terminating her employment contract, unless she was in a position to give them an assurance that she would be able to return to work within a four to six week time period. Miss Clavin went and sought the advice of her consultant as to when she might be in a position to return to work. Unfortunately, her consultant was on holidays. Miss Clavin contacted Marks and Spencers to tell them of this and to ask them for more time uh, for her to come back to them when her consultant had returned from leave. But Marks and Spencers didn't allow her that time and it terminated her employment contract. Miss Clavin brought her case to our Equality Tribunal and was awarded 18 months remuneration for her dismissal. It's a very, very high award given that the maximum award was two years of remuneration. The equality officer who dealt with the case was 
scathing in his criticism of Marx and Spencer's, saying that it was very disrespectful, disrespectful for, an, for an employee of seven years standing not to be allowed extra time to secure information from her consultant, and that it was high-handed of Marx and Spencer's to establish a nominal day by which Miss, Miss Clavin should be fit to return to work or else her employment contract would be terminated. So I think that we can take some of the lessons from that case law and apply it uh, as uh, when we're advising employers, or if you are an employer, if you're considering dismissal on the grounds of incapacity. So the learnings from my session really are for employers to take heart that it is possible to terminate the employment contract of an employee on grounds of incapacity. But, and it is a big but, a fair procedure needs to be followed and also the employer has to have established medical facts which point to the employee being incapable of doing their work following reasonable accommodation. As an employer, make sure you have a good paper trail leading up to the termination of the employment contract to show and to be in a position to demonstrate to a third party that you formed a fair and reasoned opinion that the employee was incapacitated from doing their job and involve the employee at all stages in this procedure to ensure that there are no surprises for the employee and that when the decision to dismiss is taken, if it is taken, that the employee will have been well warned that that decision was under consideration. So that's it. Thank you for, very much for your time. Thank you, Liz. Just to recap, in this podcast, we have considered the impact of employment leave, of sick-related leave on an organisation. We have given you some tips on what should be contained in your sickness absence policies and your sick pay provisions. We have summarised the new laws on the accrual of annual leave or holidays while an employee is on sick leave. We have mentioned the concept of a reasonable accommodation for employees with disabilities. We have reviewed the case law around the termination of employees on capacity grounds and hopefully we've given you some pointers on how to effect a termination on capacity grounds in a way which should provide you with a defence to any subsequent claim. Thank you for listening. On behalf of me, Melanie Crowley, my partner Liz Ryan and Avril Daly, we hope you enjoyed our podcast and more than anything we hope that you learned something. If you've any questions, please feel free to call any one of us or indeed any member of the Employment and Benefits team. You'll get us on plus 3531614500 or you can email employmentlaw at mhc.ie. Until next time, goodbye.